This is an ABC podcast. Fitzroy in inner city Melbourne is today one of those classic gentrified suburbs with a population of people who work in media or advertising or law or whatever. But it wasn't like that when Tony Birch was growing up around the area in the 50s and 60s. Fitzroy was then filled with working class people who worked in the factories nearby. There were, and still are, towers of Housing Commission flats. There'd always been an Aboriginal community there, and Fitzroy was a magnet for Greek and Italian migrant families after the war. Dr Tony Birch was born into a large family of Aboriginal, West Indian and Irish descent. As a kid, Tony was an altar boy and very bookish. But he got into trouble as a teenager and was expelled from two schools for fighting. But with the help of a mentor, Tony made his way into university as a mature-age student, where he got a master's in creative writing and a PhD in history. But Tony never forgot where he came from, and where he came from gave him a huge treasury of stories. And Tony has since become a major Australian author. Tony's got a new collection of short stories called Dark As Last Night. Welcome back, Tony. Thank you very much for having me, Richard. The thing about life, as I understand it, in a working-class area back in those days, Tony, the days of your childhood, is that absolutely nothing could go to waste. Did you and your sisters go out gleaning around Fitzroy, around the area, trying to find stuff to bring home? Yeah, and we did so by necessity. Um, these days I, I collect as enjoyment, but when we were kids, I mean, the sorts of things that we had to collect were... Firstly, the most basic was firewood, and we were lucky that a lot of houses were being demolished at the time, so there was a plentiful supply of scrap wood. Usually it would be large planks of wood that, you know, two or three of us would need to carry home, and my mum might chop the wood up, but often it was a case of just sticking the end in the fire, and as the plank burnt down, <laughs> you just pushed more of it into the fireplace. So <laughs> firewood was a necessity. Secondly, um, beer bottles. We collected beer bottles for many years and we used to get, I think, a shilling a dozen for um, beer bottles. So, you know, 20 dozen bottles would get you a pound. We also collected scrap metal from a very young age. So, again, with a lot of the houses being knocked down, we regularly collected scrap lead and scrap copper and a bit of scrap brass. And you could make a good, you know, sort of income out of that sort of level of scrap that, that went into the family income. It wasn't done so that kids could sort of just have pocket money. Everything that you made, any any money that you made, you you made a contribution to the family. So so they were the major, you know, sort of glean, gleaning we did was around firewood, scrap metal and um, beer bottles. And what if you didn't find firewood during the winter months? Well, it'd be very cold. I mean, the houses were clearly uninsulated. There was no heating at all except for the open fireplace. And in the case of our family, it was even more drastic. We we didn't have any running hot water. So we had a copper, as people call it, in a, a lean-to laundry in the yard that was also needed fuel, which also needed scrap wood to, to heat up. So without the wood, you wouldn't have a hot wash and, and you certainly wouldn't have a fire. I'd have to say, Richard, I can't remember a time when we didn't have wood and I think that's simply because we'd worked very hard to make sure that we gathered it. And I think the most important implement that the family had was it was an old pram. So the old pram was used to go around the street and pick up wood, to pick up the bottles, to pick up the scrap and to do shopping, you know, everything we did required the use of a pram and the only use the pram didn't have was to sit a kid in it because that would have taken <laughs> up space. So, But I, I honestly, I can't remember not having a fire and there, I'm, I'm probably sure that there were the odd occasions. But, look, we were really enterprising, we were really resourceful and I, I think I should add that we were pretty lucky. My nan lived next door to us and her boyfriend, a fellow called Ray, he was a a scrap man and junk man, so he used to pick up scrap metal and other sorts of junk from the street, and he would often, of course, bring home wood as well. That while he was going around the streets picking stuff up, he would he would gather wood as well. So if we didn't have enough wood in the house, I, I do remember also getting wood out of my grandmother's um, back garden. 
What kind of spatial awareness do you develop of a suburb like Fitzroy when you're doing that sort of thing? You'd probably be able to walk your way through every back alley blindfolded from one end of that suburb to the other. Am I right in thinking that, Tony? Oh, yeah. I mean, um, I could. And I live in Fitzroy now and, you know, during lockdown we're, we're stuck in our five-kilometre radius and my, my wife and I walk our, our dog regularly around the, the suburb. We, we took him out for a long walk this morning and he's a Jack Russell, so he's a back lane sort of guy, so he loves the back lanes. And I do talk about how much familiarity I have with the streets and familiarity that you had from a very young age. So it does surprise me now that you know when I was five years of age, I took myself everywhere, to, to and from school, to and from the paper shop, to and from the football. So you get to know the street very well. And I think the other aspect of that, Richard, is, you, you know, I know the term can be overused, but you do get to become street smart from a very young age. So what you might call perceived danger or just an awareness of, you know, where not to go and when not to go there, or you would get a sense of something happening in the street that was a, it was best to avoid. So I have a good sense of, of avoiding conflict and avoiding mm. dangerous situations, but I suppose the best way to put it would be by being able to read the street. I mean, that's very different now when you, you know, go down Brunswick Street, you, all you have to read is the, the sign for eight different sorts of coffee you can get. But um, <laughs> as a kid, it was a very different place. It, it, our family was well known, so people were generally protective of me as a kid, but you still had to be, you had to be quite aware of what was going on around you in certain streets that you would avoid at certain times of day or night. I lived in Fitzroy for years during the uh, late 1980s and early 1990s when it was just sort of starting to be gentrified, but I'd still see some pretty wild things there, Tony. I remember being woken at two in the morning, looking out at my uh, house on Moore Street in Fitzroy and seeing an extremely large, very, very overweight man who was clearly a taxi driver running stark naked in the middle of winter down Moore Street, screaming out, help, help, I've been robbed. And, and I, th- I think what had happened mm-hmm. was he'd just, he'd just been robbed in his taxi and, and the thieves had taken his clothes, so he couldn't do anything about it. Did you see wild stuff like that happening all the time in, uh, in Fitzroy as a kid? Well, I never saw a naked taxi driver, <laughs> Richard. I, I think that was um, entertainment for the middle class. I'm not sure. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's interesting you say that because, and again, you, we've got to avoid, avoid being romantic because mm. it was in some ways a very tough place to grow up in. But I would say quite strongly that robbery was very uncommon amongst people simply because we didn't have anything to rob. You know, it's not as if people could come to your house and take something from you that they wanted because you tended to have nothing. And I don't mean that in any sort of woe is me way. I mean, we may have occasionally had a, a black and white television, but we certainly wouldn't have any cash or any other goods in the house. So robbery amongst people w- was very uncommon. It was more the case that when I was a kid in Fitzroy, the sort of illegality that you would see and, you know, a pretty sort of wild night would occur somewhere along Gertrude Street or possibly Brunswick Street. But that was related to the pubs. It was related to particular forms of entertainment like the the gambling clubs, um, occasionally espresso bars, a bit of street dealing, a bit of street prostitution. But it was largely confined to those strips. So, again, you could, you know come down to Afferton Street where we live, which was probably, you know, in a couple of hundred metres off Gertrude Street, and it would be relatively quiet on most occasions. I mean, people might have a drink and a, a, a bit of a party now and then, but I don't remember it being particularly wild. Um, it would be up on those main strips, strips that you'd really see the action, and that would be um, pretty wild because of the fact that there were so many activities in the 60s in particular that were either illegal or what we might call sublegal, that were very um, widely known and very widely practised and enjoyed, but were technically illegal. So they relied on fairly strong relationships between police and yeah, cafe owners, um, pubs, slow grog shop owners, etc. So it was a very intricate and fairly organised chaos in a strange sort of way. Your grandmother ran a slow grog shop. Tony, tell me about this and why was was there a need for sly grog shops back in those days? Well, firstly, the need. The need was obvious. I mean, obviously, until um, the end of six o'clock clothing, which was in the mid-60s, I mean, it was ridiculous to think that people would, would stop drinking at six o'clock of a day. And you particularly imagine, a, you know, Thursday night was pay night, 
Friday night was usually the end of the working week and Saturday, you know, it could be after the football or, you know, Saturdays in summer that people weren't going to stop drinking. So the reality was that people had to be able to get alcohol from somewhere. And we know that some of the pubs continued to sell illegally after hours. That's widely known. But people would establish slugrog shops or just, you know, when you say shops, um, people like my grandmother and many others would sell alcohol from the back gate or a side door. And what they really did was simply often sell sell only beer, um, some wine, and they would sell it at a, at a markup that justified them having a business, but at a markup that people regarded as an acceptable markup for having to being able to buy alcohol outside hours. But even when 10 o'clock closing came in, so people could drink from the mid-60s up until 10 p.m., there was still no Sunday trading. And again, even though 10 p.m. seems relatively late, if people didn't get themselves organised, they would want to buy alcohol from a sly grog. And the other aspect of the sly grog was that some sly grogs functioned as, in a sense, illegal bars or you know, sort of illegal pubs where people could drink on the premises so that there were several places in Fitzroy where they'd set up a slide rug in a backyard of a factory on a premises where people not only would get alcohol, they might get some food, might even get some entertainment. And this this branched out to the illegal so-called nightclubs that were established in Fitzroy. So there are a lot of clubs working in Fitzroy that were functioning outside hours of hotels that also offered entertainment and illegal alcohol. But my my grandmother's business was pretty much a, a backyard business of literally selling alcohol from her back gate off a house in George Street in Fitzroy where conveniently she had a nice back lane where people would come to the back gate and she would sell um, alcohol from the back gate. Did the police take an interest in, in that? Oh, yeah, look, and my PhD actually dealt with a lot of this stuff. I did a lot of oral history interviews around sublegal, illegal activities and street life. And when I started that, I would have used the term police corruption to say, well, for these sublegal and illegal activities to function, the coppers had to be paid off, so therefore we're talking about corruption. But when I interviewed people, particularly people who ran any business that required them paying police, well, some were strongly offended by the notion that it was corruption. They regarded it as, as a legitimate relationship between police and businesses because the only way that these businesses could function in an orderly way was to have that relationship with police. It was clear that police could never stop these activities. That was, you know, everyone understood that. And by having a formal relationship with the police, as illegal as it was, allowed the businesses often to run in a very orderly fashion so that in my nan's case, um, she would certainly occasionally pay police and she would certainly give free alcohol to the police. In exchange for that, she wanted to run a business itself that was orderly. She didn't want to draw attention to the business. So in other words, yeah, she wouldn't want people sort of um, trying to stand over her for alcohol or people fighting in the lane or drinking in the lane behind her, her place. So she could call the police and they would make sure that people were moved on. So in many of the, these businesses, that relationship between police and business owners had been in place for decades and it functioned relatively well. And it, it's important to note that because in an atmosphere where you know that people are going to do something like drink, like gamble, like SP bookmaking, you couldn't allow those to operate unless you had a relationship with police. Tell me more about your, your nan. Her name was Alma. What did she look like through your child's eyes, Tony? Well, she, she wasn't very tall. She was vertically challenged. She was about five foot tall. Um, very beautiful woman when she was younger. She had... Um, a quite exotic way of describing herself. She she had about six or seven aliases, surnames. She did once go by the name of Alma Bordeaux and she didn't admit until very much later in life that she had taken the Bordeaux name off a wine bottle um, <laughs> so that she, she often told exotic stories about herself. She was tattooed, which was very unusual for a woman, and she was a very tenacious but very warm woman, so I was very close to her. She passed away when I was 40, so I was able to enjoy a lot of my growing up around her. She always lived very close by. My first packet of cigarettes that I bought was a packet of Park Drive, which I bought for 33 cents on Smith Street in Collingwood, and I was 
in grade six at the Christian Brothers. She paid for the cigarettes and we split them. So I took 10 cigarettes and she took the other 10. So she didn't mind that I was smoking at the age of 11, which people might seem surprised by. But at the same time, she was incredibly warm, incredibly loving and someone that I always felt incredibly safe around. So talking about that idea of growing up in a fairly tough neighbourhood, you've got a great sense of, of affection of being around Alma and it's the way she was with all her grandchildren. All her grandchildren were very close to her. She was an op-shop treasure hunter. What were some of the places she'd take you to on her op-shop treasure hunting adventures with you, Tony? Yeah, well, again, I, I think when we started going... Well, when I started going to op-shops and I'd always gone to them, it was, in a sense, out of necessity so that, you know, now I, I can go to op-shops because I just love the treasure hunt, but... When we were young kids, we, we literally didn't buy new clothes, so we bought all our clothes from, from op shops. But my grandmother and I used to go to an op shop in Abbotsford every Friday, which we called the Anchorage, which is part of the Salvation Army, and the op shop, or a form of that op shop, is still on that site today. When I was a kid, it comprised of several incredibly large corrugated iron sheds that were divided into you know, furniture in one shed, books and comics in another shed, adult clothing in another shed, bric-a-brac in another shed, kids' clothing in another shed. And we would walk from Fitzroy to, to the op shop, so about half an hour, and we would spend the morning there. And my grandmother was someone who loved ornamentation, so that she would buy doilies, she would buy statuettes, she would buy other trinkets, and while she was doing that, and she would painstakingly go through, um, I reckon, hundreds of objects to pick the one or two that she wanted to take home, and she would let me loose in the place with the rule that I could buy one comic or book, I could buy one toy, and I could buy one piece of clothing. And I couldn't mix and match, so I couldn't come back and say, well, I've got two jumpers, I'll only get one comic. She'd say, no, that doesn't work. So she allowed me that strict rule of buying one object of those three things each week. We would go back home and in her house, um, and particularly in later years when I was about 10 or 11, she had what we call a cocktail cabinet. Um, she didn't mix cocktails, but her cocktail cabinet, which was this beautiful glass to Art Deco cabinet, she would place the object that she'd bought in the cabinet along with all the other trinkets and objects, and then she would lock the cabinet and put the key somewhere that you couldn't find it, and you were never allowed to touch the objects again. You're only allowed to look at them. So her grandkids would spend hours, you know, sitting in front of this <laughs> cocktail cabinet looking through glass at these, in, in what we regarded as incredible treasures, incredible beautiful objects, and we would occasionally say to my grandmother, oh, can I play with that glass horse or can, or can I play with that teacup? And she'd say, no, these are just for show, which is a great word that you know, she used. These are for show. So these were to show herself off. These weren't objects that we could play with. So we spent years as kids sitting around this cocktail cabinet admiring these beautiful treasures that she bought over the years. How important were comic books to you as a kid? I wasn't, I suppose, there are some people who are just, you know, when you think about people who are into comics as a hobby, there are people who know comics back the front. My um, love of comics was divided pretty simply. I didn't like black and white comics, so, so I never bought phantom comics as long as they were in colour. We collected comics each week. We had a huge pile of comics at home and every night after tea, um, the kids and even I think my mum and dad, we would read comics religiously and when we'd read them to the point where we knew every every comic, every story, we would take our pile of comics around to Brunswick Street to a place called the Book Depot. So there was a, I think, a whole series of these across Melbourne called the Melbourne Book Depot, and you could take your, say, 50 comics in to the bookshop and you could exchange them for 25 comics, so like a two-for-one. So you might get 25 comics for free and you might get 25 comics and buy another 25 comics and have the original 50. So we were always recycling our comics. We always had a very large supply of comics, and they were probably, until I joined a library 
it would have been the only form of reading that, that I did was to read comics. And certainly at home, the only form of reading we had were comics and, and newspapers, um, the Sporting Globe. My dad religiously read the Sporting Globe, so we didn't read books. Comics were, were a key to our, our sort of literary education. You grew up in inner city Melbourne at a time when the Victorian state government decided to absolutely demolish blocks of the old Victorian houses and replace them with housing commission flats. That must have been a very strange time to be growing up in where, you know, there'd be a row of houses there from the 19th century one day and then there'd just be a pile of rubble the next day. What was that like, Tony? It's pretty complex. I mean, at a simple level, it might seem odd. Being a young kid at some level it was incredibly adventurous. By that I mean that we moved out of Fitzroy at the end of 1966 and just after that they started to build what is known as the Atherton Gardens Estate, which is that high-rise estate off Gertrude and Brunswick Street. So it actually took the Housing Commission about seven years to acquire, in the old measurement, about 13 acres that comprised that estate. So what that meant for a kid growing up is that there were always empty houses around you there were always houses around you that were being demolished. So you'd spend a lot of weekends sort of going through empty houses, um, collecting stuff that people left behind, you know, again, toys, furniture, smashing windows, being fairly reckless, you know, productively um, stripping the houses of scrap metal. And the sort of might of a bulldozer is somewhat attractive to a young child. So that when you saw a bulldozer rip through a house and demolish a double-storey terrace in about half an hour, there was something incredibly seemingly powerful about it. On the negative side, it absolutely destroyed the social fabric of those suburbs. So you mentioned before about the Fitzroy always having a very strong Aboriginal community. Well, the Aboriginal community from Fitzroy began to be dispersed very much from that period. The social networks of women had established over decades, wherever that be shared child minding, using the pawn shop economy, money lending to each other, just giving each other the support mechanisms that were needed, they were completely destroyed. So when you think about a suburb that had such a sense of ingenuity about it in a social and economic way, so again, all those illegal clubs and gambling dens, they were incredibly productive economically for some migrant families and communities. All of that was destroyed very quickly. I think the other thing that that came with that is when you saw how easily your home could be demolished and literally obliterated overnight, I grew up or learned to not be too um, too welded to the to the home space. So it, it might sound odd that I have a very strong relationship to the inner city and a very strong connection to the inner city. I've never been precious about the actual house I live in. Until I was 15 years old, I lived in four houses. None of those houses exist now. They were all demolished for government housing or freeway schemes. Schools that I went to have been demolished. Factories that my parents worked in have been demolished. So not only homes but street corners and whole areas of my you know, memory map no longer exist you do lose so much of the legitimation of that memory if you can't take someone back to that place. You can't take someone to the street and say, as I grew up in, um, I slept in that front room with my brother. That's the peach tree that we used to climb in the backyard. It's as if your memory is not quite legitimate because you don't have the physical places to attach them to. So you have to recreate it with words. Yes, of course, yes. That cabinet you mentioned of your nan's, that that cocktail cabinet where she kept all her most precious finds from the various op shops she went to. What happened to it after she died? Well, this is in some ways a sad but I think beautiful story, Richard. When my grandmother was dying in 1996, she spent her last week in St Vincent's Hospital in Fitzroy and I remember in those last days of her life and she was barely conscious we made a very strong decision in the family that my grandmother would never be left alone. So we had a roster that each of us made sure that we stayed with her. And I remember when my shifts were on, there were these very wide windowsills overlooking Fitzroy and I would sit on the windowsill in the sun and I'd be looking down across the, you know, the streets of our sort of entire childhood and, 
and my relationship to her. So there was something remarkable about that. My grandmother died on the 4th of July, 1996. And my mother, the first thing that she did was to go to my grandmother's flat and call all of the children there and said, take one thing each or take a couple of things each that you think are important to you in relationship to your nan's life. And the rest, my mum said, okay, everything else is going to the op shop. And we packed everything in boxes, dropped it all at the St Vincent's de Paul op shop on Donson Street. And why I think there's something beautiful about that is that all of those objects that my nan collected, other than the ones that we took home as memento, um, went back to the op shops that she'd collected them from. So, of course, it means that those objects that, that she'd loved and cared for and that we'd sort of poured over with our kids' eyes had another life, would go on to have another life with someone who walked into that op shop. And I, I love the thought of someone walking into the op shop and picking up the glass horse that my grandmother had bought 30 years earlier and admiring it the way that she admired it and taking it home and putting it somewhere, maybe on a bookshelf, maybe on a mantelpiece. So it was it was actually quite a beautiful gesture on my mum's part, I think. Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. Tony Rizzle, you've told the story of a strange episode in your young life an opportunity that came your way to have Christmas with another family. How did this happen? It happened because the Catholic Church in Fitzroy, which was associated with the Sacred Heart School where I went to primary school, used to arrange for kids to have holidays with middle-class Catholic families each year. And they were kids who were over from very poor white families and Aboriginal families and kids who were successful in getting an allocation would be sent to families over Christmas. My older brother and sister had gone on an aeroplane, which to explain that would be like saying, oh, my brother and sister went to Mars on a rocket. Mm. It was <laughs> such an outlandish possibility. And they'd gone on an aeroplane for a one-week holiday one Christmas, and I was four years of age. It was before I'd gone to school. And I was so jealous and envious, I just drove my mother crazy telling her that I wanted to go on a holiday in the following year. I don't know that it was her nagging the nuns at school or that I'd had a good school year, which I was a pretty good student in primary school. But the next Christmas I was told that I was having a holiday and I'd be spending that with a Catholic family. And I was told that I was going to a place called Rosanna, and I wondered how long the plane trip would be and uh, <laughs> how far how far would the plane ride. And... Rosanna's one of those bush suburbs, isn't it? Isn't that out near Heidelberg somewhere in Melbourne? Well, <laughs> it's a 10K from the CBD, Richard. Um, <laughs> and I got into a car with this woman, this little Morris Minor, and this woman dressed expensively. I still remember in a red coat, a red hat and, and pearls, and when we got in the car, I thought we are going to the airport and then we pulled up outside a triple-fronted cream brick veneer about half an hour later and I thought maybe we're picking up some other kids who are also going on the aeroplane. <laughs> but, in fact, we were at the destination, um, which was where I was staying. Um, I still remember going into the house and being introduced to a, a family who, who looked like they were out of an American sitcom, like Father Knows Best or My Three Sons, in a beautiful sort of modern Australian 1960s kitchen, incredibly bright and light. I remember the lino was grey and pink. I never forgot that. It was a grey and pink colour. The lounge room would have been bigger than our whole house. The Christmas tree was, I mean, I, as a kid, I, I thought, I don't think Jack from the Beanstalk could climb that Christmas tree. It just seemed <laughs> so huge. And they had this amazing wallpaper in the hallway, which was a 
a texture of a, a sort of a velvet pattern, a black velvet pattern on white. And the first transgression that I committed when I went to the house was when the woman opened the front door and we entered the hallway. I was so drawn to this wallpaper. I thought it was carpet on the wall. <laughs> I, I ran my hands across the black velvet texture and the woman just turned and she snapped, don't touch that. Um, so, um, so, yeah, everything was big, everything was right. bright, a, a huge big black and white television. And then my clothes, which were, again, second-hand clothes for op from op shops were taken from me. I still remember they burnt all my clothes in the incinerator in the backyard and burnt the um, cardboard suitcase, but they didn't say anything. Which they hardly spoke to me. They they were looking at me like I was a, some exotic species. I mean, I suppose it might have been just normal middle class life because if you imagine Richard us sitting in our small kitchen in Fitzroy, there were seven of us around the kitchen table. Everyone weighing in with their say. You know, kids talking over the top of each other. Everyone, you know. If you lost a potato off your plate, it would, you know, who could stick the fork in that potato <laughs> quickest got, got the loose potato? And so it was all about formality that didn't make any sense to me, the fact that people didn't seem to speak, didn't seem to really interact. And the children seemed very unhappy. I, I still remember the interaction with the two kids who I know went to private Catholic schools. They seemed very unhappy, the kids. So I just simply didn't understand it in any way. And over the next couple of weeks, I had all my back teeth removed. What do you mean you had your back teeth removed? What do you mean? Well, they took me to a dentist. And by the way, they took me to a dentist in Brunswick Street, Fitzroy. It's so, <laughs> it's so cruel. And my back teeth, top and bottom on both sides of my mouth, were taken out. Did they check in with your mum at all? No, they, no, they, well, they hadn't checked in with my, my mother at all and I don't think that she would have approved. So, no, there was no discussion with my family about this. I was then taken to a, a barber shop and had my hair shaved and I had quite nice hair. If you can imagine Paul McCartney as a five-year-old, that's <laughs> me. And um, I had my hair shaved and I spent the next two weeks in a sort of state of absolute misery in a house of people. And I I think about this. I Sorry, Richard, I thought about this in later life. It seemed to me even as a child to be a house without affection because I don't remember these people talking to each other really. They, they, didn't, they weren't cruel to me or anything. They didn't punish me in any physical way, but they hardly spoke. They were very formal. And it was just a sense of, for me, of hollowness and... I suppose it prejudiced me against the suburbs. I felt that I was in this place that was completely devoid of people, of emotion. So there was nothing there that I wanted. I spent two weeks with them. I don't remember much about what else we did except that father organised a spelling bee, which I won, which they were very disappointed in because both the kids and the family went to private schools. Um, <laughs> and the other aspect of it, which was very troubling... I didn't understand that my mother had only allowed for them to take me for a week and I was supposed to be coming home and at the end of the week I didn't come home and toward the end of the second week I still had not come home and she got very worried and contacted the church. And at the, in the meantime, in the house, the, the, I remember the woman repeatedly saying to me, do you like it here? Would you like to stay here? Each night when I went into bed and... Each night when I went into the bedroom, I would just ask her after she asked me the question, when am I going home? And because I'd shared a bed with my older brother, Brian, and did until I was 10 years old, I just, the notion of sleeping in a bed without my brother I, was terrible. Um, I didn't want to have a big bed and be on my own. I wanted to sleep with my, my older brother because he was a sort of a, he was very much of a protector of mine and quite a hero of mine and I missed my brother desperately. And I got really anxious and really worried. So I devised a plan of escape, but it included me remembering the address of the house, which I, you know, seared into my consciousness because I had this idea that I was going to escape the house, find a policeman and tell him that these people were were trying to kidnap me. But then fortunately my mother made enough noise um, and really demanded that I be brought back home and 
after the two weeks, I was I was returned to um, the family with a suitcase full of clothes that belonged to the boy in the house, which I then divided up between my brother and sister. <laughs> so you came very close to being stolen, essentially, then? Well, I think so. Um, my mother doesn't like to talk about it because she feels very guilty and I don't believe there's any need for that and I've told her that for many years because when I was offered to go for a holiday, I really believed that my mother knew that she could never afford for any of her children to have a holiday and the holiday my older brother and sister had taken to Coryong, they really loved and, yeah, they, they stayed with a Catholic family that were really great and, yeah, so it's not... I don't want to condemn everyone because they stayed with apparently a pretty wild bunch of Catholic kids on a farm and they had a ball and they, they you know, when I remember when they came back, I think my sister, you know, they, her and one of the kids used to write, you know, pen pal letters to each other. So for them it was a great holiday and I think on the basis of that, my mum thought, well, you know, Tony's entitled to the same enjoyment. So she had no sense of what was happening and she's a very strong woman, my mum, and once she was aware that something was happening she made sure that, that I'd be brought home. So I don't know what eventual plans the, the family had, but they certainly, I think, involved the possibility of me not going back home. So to you, that family looked really weird. What were you to them, do you think? Oh, look, it's interesting because a lot of my research work as a historian is looking at so-called postwar welfare, and I think what they would see, one, that I was a child they needed to save... Um, that was clear, and that by giving me something of material value, that to them that would be saving me. They were quite religious, so I know that we went to church while I was there on the Sunday. We said grace at every meal, and although I'd been brought up Catholic in Fitzroy, and in fact I was an older boy, I think that they were um, possessed by the notion that they could save me by physically cleansing me and spiritually cleansing me, and I don't think for them, as odd as it seems, burning my clothes and having my teeth removed, I think that they, that's part of the act of, you know, of social hygiene, which, yeah, which related to issues like eugenics, and I don't want to get into discussions, but strict eugenics being about biological control, but what is called social eugenics is to use social welfare measures and forms of cleanliness to uplift people. I think they would have seen me as, as diseased. I think they would have seen me as tainted. And when you think about the clothing and the hair, they probably wanted to cut my hair. I may have had nits or fleas at the time. I don't know. We often did. We couldn't escape that reality living in crowded houses. I think burning the clothes would be an act of destroying any germs. So I think it was trying to cleanse me of germs, to be, to be literally honest about it. Have you ever been back to that house in Rosanna? I have been back to the house in Rosanna. In fact, I never forgot the address. So I was only five years of age. If anyone ever said to me, do you remember where it was? I remembered the address, I remembered the house. And many, many years later, I think I was in my 40s, I was out that way. I called in to see a friend and then gone to, gone to a nursery, actually, to buy some plants. And I was near the river and I realised I knew this part of the river and then I remembered, well, this is Heidelberg, this is Rosanna. I looked up in the old street directory, the Melway, and the street was very close, so I drove the five minutes to the street, I drove into the street, parked outside the house, immediately recognised the house. The odd thing was that the, the day that I'd arrived at that house when I was five, I remember the garden being incredibly bright and these flowers, and I don't know their, the, the, the proper name, but people call Red Hot Poker, these incredibly bright flowers and this really almost luridly um, bright garden. And then when I went back there these decades later, it was in real sort of neglect and disrepair. Um, there were some old rose thorns, but it looked like a garden that hadn't been tended for, for a long, long time. I got out of the car and knocked on the door with little understanding or notion of what I was doing. And then the door answered. An old, old woman opened the door she didn't seem too alert or well. I'm sure she had a wig on. And the other thing that was sort of quite eerie is that I looked and the wallpaper that I'd known as a kid was still there, but it was all sort of scrubby and... Yeah, so the place looked run down, basically. 
And then I asked her if she was the woman who lived in the house and did, I said, because I stayed in his house when I was a boy, and I gave the family surname and she sort of clutched at her, she had a dressing gown on, she sort of clutched at it and in a way quite defensively, yeah, she's looking at a strange man, she wouldn't know who I was and so maybe there was good reason to do that. And she said, I don't know what you're talking about and, and closed the door really br abruptly and I left. Certainly I don't know if it was the woman who was the mum who picked me up and I left thinking, well, I don't know and I should leave because, you know, I, I could have disturbed someone. So I just left and left it at that. I'm sure you're aware of this as much as anyone, but, you know, slums often have a bad name when, in fact, they're places where there's a huge amount of dynamism, the, the kind of thing you were talking about earlier about repurposing things, gleaning things, putting nothing to waste. A lot of people trying to find some way to get a toehold in this world and doing it quite energetically. And there's also often a real radical egalitarianism in such places. That was the environment you'd grown up in. Did you feel the sting of that family's disdain for you as a working-class, unclean kid? Did you, do you remember feeling that sting or did that never bother you as a kid, Tony? Um, it's a really interesting um, point you make because the way that I grew up was in an insular way of being very protected and being inside a community, not outside. So if you imagine living in Fitzroy in the early 60s and you're surrounded by Aboriginal families, you're surrounded by poor white families and certainly mixed families, you know, strong families of mixed Aboriginal, often Irish Catholic families and migrant families who didn't have much either. There was a sense of inclusiveness. So one within the community, you certainly didn't feel sense of, of, of shame but certainly I always knew when people were looking down on me and while I might have some sort of um, bravado against that yeah there were at times both as a kid and as an early adult where you would feel a sense of shame that people didn't think you were good enough and you weren't good enough and I can say Richard that it carried on to when I went to university I went to university when I was 30 years of age. I went to university because I did very well the year before by doing my, what was then HSC at night school at Broadmeadows TAFE College. I got very high entry marks into Melbourne University and when I walked through the gates of the university the first day of term, as it was called then, I had done so with absolute legitimacy of doing as well or better than most other first-year arts students but I, one, I felt like a, an absolute fraud that I'd be found out that I wasn't good enough. When I told my mum I was going to Melbourne University, I, all I saw on her face was fear. My mum's always been unbelievably proud of me, but I think she feared that I would fail and that people would find me out. And what I realised very quickly is that people who do have a, a class bias would tried to look down on me because I didn't speak as well as they did because I didn't go to the schools that they went to and I didn't try to be like them. I just wanted to be myself. And to be honest, that only changed when I did better than most other students so that I was a, a very good student at undergrad level. I got very high marks. I got very high marks in my honours. I got scholarship to my PhD and I'm not trying to blow my own trumpet here but I won the Chancellor's Medal for the best PhD in the Arts Faculty at Melbourne University, I think, in 2003. So I, I did everything to say, well, I'm not only entitled to be here, I'm here because I'm very good. And to be accepted at that level has always been difficult. At the same time, there are aspects of the cultural currency of a place like Melbourne University that have never interested me anyway, so that my friendship groups, I have some good friendships from university, really good friendships. Yeah, I met some great people at university. I wouldn't want to... I'd want to make sure I said that. But my strongest friendships, one of my strongest friends is I've been friends with since I was 10 years of age and we lived on the Housing Commission estate together so that there are aspects of, of growing up where people people want you to feel shame and they, they know all the signals, you know, correcting your pronunciation, for instance is something I love in people because 
you know, it's not the pronunciation of someone's words, it's the intent of their words that matter. So things like that, you, I, I never understood those things, Richard, until I went to university. The notion that someone would cor correct your pronunciation when you're growing up was ludicrous because we all spoke in odd ways, but we all knew what we, yeah, we all knew what we were saying. I remember when Christos Solkis yes. came on the program and Christos was telling me how he'd grown up in this working-class migrant Greek family and he said the day his uncle dropped him off at Melbourne Uni for the first day and he stepped out the car and into the gates of Melbourne Uni, he said he took a step that took him a million miles away from his family and everywhere he'd come from and he feels a bit of shame about that now. And he said that when he'd learnt all these things at uni that made him clever and he would come home and lecture his mum on her backward opinions on this or her conservative opinions about that and he just thinks he feels terrible about that now. I wonder if that, that didn't happen to you because you came in as a mature age student. Yeah, it's interesting that Christos Tolkos is a good friend of mine and we've spoken about these issues. And by the way, he went to the same high school as I did, Richmond High School. So um, Richmond High School's put out two geniuses. You know, it's amazing. <laughs> um, I think it is because of his age. I think there are two things. And, and I think the fact that Christos has talked about this and written about it shows a great integrity in him to to be self-critical in that way. And I think he's overly self-critical, by the way. I... Yeah, well, I think that sense of shame is, is I understand it, but he, he need not feel it to that degree because I think his politics is, is wonderful and his writing is wonderful. But I would say that it is partly its age, but it's, I think it's partly the migrant experience that I think the time that Christos would have gone to university, there's this enormous pressure on the kids of migrants initially to assimilate and to feel assimilated and to be accepted. And I think Christos would have gone through that very strongly. But I think like a lot of other migrant families and a lot of other migrant kids, Christos has come back to really appreciate deeply his, 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 for want of a better term, his Greekness of growing up in a Greek-Australian family. And many of my friends from high school over of a Greek or Italian background, as they've grown older, they've actually gone back to really value what it is that, that, that they value. They, they clearly are Australian and they understand the values that have helped their kids get on, et cetera, et cetera. But I think they, they now affirm their, their, for want of a better term, their ethnic self um, more than they had when they were younger. So I just think it's part of the enormous pressure put on people to, to be homogenous. And I think the last thing we need in a, a country like Australia is that homogeneity. I think we need to appreciate difference. Um, in my case, I think what I was always saved by is that I grew up in a house and a family in the community that understood diversity in the truest sense. So I understood that in my extended family, I can literally talk about either blood or married relations who are Aboriginal from Barbados, from Malta, from Ireland, from the UK, from other parts of the world, from India. I have my great-grandfather by marriage is from the Punjab. So I always mm -hmm. lived in a really diverse family. So I didn't feel a need to, to escape that um, in any way. You're a grandfather now, and I might even go so far to say as you're a grandfathering enthusiast, Tony. What do you think when you look at your grandkids' lives and your own childhood? Oh, look, I have three grandkids, um, Isabel, who's five, Archie, three, and Charlie, who's ten months, who's unfortunately in London, so I've, I've never seen him in the flesh. I had a chat on Zoom to him last night. What I see is, that, I mean, it's that, it's that complexity of kids who are just like you, kids who you just see parts of yourself in, parts of your siblings in. So Archie, my three-year-old grandson, looks very much in some ways like my son Drew and also my brother Wayne who passed away a couple of years ago. He physically looks like them. He has actions that remind you of them. So, yeah, the whole idea of blood, DNA, it's all there. Embedded history, embedded emotions. But, of course, their lives are very different in the sense that their lives are much more secure economically. They haven't suffered the... Um, issue that I lived with living in a in a violent home and with a violent father. So I know these kids have loving fathers, good fathers. So there's very much something quite different, which I love. I think that growing up the way that I did gave me a great sense of resilience and gave me a lot of strength, but it also comes with a lifelong 
underlying trauma that you, you never escape. I'd rather my grandchildren live in secure and safety and be a bit insulated and be a little bit naive than have to learn the street smarts I did. And you feel as a grandparent that what you are or what you've achieved or what you've become was worth it because not only do you have children but to see these little people running about and having a life ahead of them, you do feel, well, I've contributed something here that's worth it. There's something here that I can give value to. So I actually love being a grandparent and I love being around my grandchildren. I, outside my personal relationships, being with my grandchildren is probably my primary interest and my primary, primary joy these days. My grandson Archie has, he's already inherited op shop fever. He comes here each Thursday, we go to the op shop his dad's a firefighter, so obviously he's into fire trucks. And we have about 30 fire trucks or garbage trucks in, in the house in his cubby. And each week we would bring another one home and, you know, the whole family go, not another truck, please, not another truck. But <laughs> he insists on buying another um, op shop truck, so he's inherited that. And I think if you've had nothing, sometimes if you can afford to be indulgent, you are. And you should be able to do things of value, even material value, without guilt. So one of the issues that was brought home to me is I'm a writer who's published 10 books now. I'd never bought a, a new book in a bookshop until I was well into adulthood, maybe at university. All the books I'd had before that I'd bought in op shops or, or swap shops. And for many years, when I went into a bookshop and bought a new book, I would feel enormously guilty about the extravagance of that. And it took me a long time to get over the fact to say, no, I actually, I work hard, I have an income, I do other good things with my money, I'm not wasteful, and buying books is something I should be able to enjoy. But it took me a long time to accept that I could enjoy buying a new book. It's been such a pleasure having you back on, Tony. I really enjoyed this conversation, as always with you. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Richard. It's been lovely to talk to you again. Dr. Tony Virch is the author of a great many books and his most recent book is a collection of short stories called Dark As Last Night. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.